Welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of May 26th from Pastor Brett Cottrell. As you know, this is Memorial Day weekend. We uh, do a number of things this weekend. Perhaps for some it's the unofficial beginning of summer and it's the week for many of you that school was out. Of course, Memorial Day is also a weekend, and tomorrow Memorial Day is a day that we remember those who have given their lives, so that we, among other things, have the freedom to bet together here this morning without worrying about the consequences. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to visit Arlington National Cemetery. There's very few places, I think, uh, in our country, in our world, that are more somber than that place. You walk in the doors of uh, Arlington, and you see the... Uh, almost the countless rows of white tombstones, and you recognize those dating from back to the Civil War to even currently, and you look at those things and you are immediately aware of the great stakes of uh, freedom and of warfare and of those who have given their lives, those who have said, I will step forward and I will do whatever it takes so that we may have freedom. The stakes are high when men and women have done those things in the past. And we know what it means to look at things and to evaluate where where things are worth it and where things are not worth it. There are a great deal of things that have uh, stakes, if you will. Sometimes we participate in things where the stakes are nothing more than a trophy. Our our name on a a $10 piece of, of equipment that says we won first place. Sometimes the stakes are money. Maybe sometimes the stakes are bragging rights, or sometimes the stakes are a job even. Sometimes the stakes are our lives or our freedoms or those values that we know and hold most dear. And we, we know and we get upset when people misplace the stakes and the values of things, when they act and, and it's not in proportion to the stakes, we take notice. So, for example, you go to a Little League baseball game, and what are the stakes of an eight-year-old's baseball game? Well, in the big scheme of things, probably not all that much. And yet, you'll find sometimes people at baseball games of eight-year-olds acting as if the stakes are, well, rather high. And we, we, we sometimes on the outside, look at that, we can, we can see the absurdity of acting as if, there are high stakes when there really aren't. And sometimes we also recognize the absurdity when people do have something substantial at stake and don't seem to, to care. When we think of serving our God, when we think of the worship that we even have given Him this morning, when we think of what it means to be a believer in Christ, for those, most of us here, it's, it's a fairly routine thing. We come most Sundays, we sing the songs, we do things like vacation Bible school, and we do those events throughout the year. It's part of our normal routine. And even for Jesus' disciples here in Mark chapter 9, it is their normal routine to hang out with Jesus. And sometimes, like the disciples, even this morning, we don't have a good handle on the real stakes. The truth is, the stakes for us this morning, even as we worship, are very, very high. As we read these last few verses of Mark chapter 9, there's a series of things that Jesus is going to be taking 
his disciples through a series of things that at first might not seem to be particularly related. It's almost a random series of things he's going to tell them. But what Jesus is telling them, I think, is this, among other things. The stakes that you're about to face are incredibly high. Let's read this, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38. John said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to, retire, for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, would you give us the wisdom of your Spirit to understand what it is you're teaching us this morning about your kingdom and about who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go back to the first few verses that we looked at here, just that we read just a few moments ago. Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Now, let me just set this for you. We have been uh, in chapter 9, we have recognized that earlier in this chapter, uh, Jesus took his disciples up on a little retreat, if you will, the very northern part of Israel. He's been talking with them and preparing them for what is to come. He took Peter, James, and John on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. He glorified himself. You saw a, a glimpse of Jesus in his heavenly, what, is, what he looks like in heaven. We saw that. We saw coming off that mountain a time where Jesus cast a demon out, and we saw him use that opportunity to teach the disciples about what it meant to serve him. And last week, we, we saw Jesus take a child and, and begin to use the child as an illustration for the disciples to tell them that they needed to understand that the values and success in the kingdom of God look different than they do in this world. And this portion of Scripture this morning is, is actually attached to all that, even though it does appear to be just a series of different things. And it, they... You know, well, what does one of these stories have to do with the next, have to do with the next? It just seems to be a, a random assortment of teachings. And, and if we were to go through the rest of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke and John, we would see some of these statements kind of scattered in different parts of Jesus' ministry. I think Mark is probably giving us a, a bit of a summary statement of the things that Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. But there is a point to all this. I think there's even a point to these things being together. So he starts off with this idea, uh, where John comes up and says, man, there is somebody over here trying to cast out demons. In fact, apparently they really were casting out demons 
in Jesus' name. And John says, tell him to stop. Because they aren't following us. Now, did you catch the end of that last word right there? Who is John concerned about here? John says, they're not following us. Now, I'm sure in John's mind, he had Jesus included in that. <laughs> but John had Jesus and himself included in that, didn't he? Now, is there a problem with that statement? Oh, yeah. Because who are people supposed to be following? Christ and Christ alone. Even this morning, as part of London First Baptist Church, we're not asking people to follow us. We're pointing people to Christ and Christ alone. And the moment we put the word us in there, no matter how well-intentioned that may be, we are already in trouble. I just wonder if sometimes Jesus is hearing that and just going, Oy. So John says, they're not following us. As if John was somehow involved in drawing people to Christ at this point in time. <laughs> As if John and his disciples were the ones actually leading people to God. We know that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know anything about this other guy. All we know is that there is some guy out there who is apparently is effectively casting out demons in Jesus' name. And John says, well, he ain't doing it the way we're doing it. He's not one of us. And I imagine it probably occurred to John, if you remember just earlier in this chapter, the disciples were trying to cast a demon out. And were they doing a very good job at it? No. So I imagine there's a number of things going on in John's life. John's going, well, this guy is not one of us. He's not doing it the way he did it. He's not following us. He's not part of our, our group. And he's still doing it over there. Jesus, tell him to stop. Now, John is one of those guys, if you were to ask, I think most of us, what our impression of John is, some people would probably think of him as the beloved disciple. There's that picture of John as being a, a disciple of love. There is, love is one of the heavy themes in the Gospel of John. We there's that famous painting. Of course, that's not scripture, but there's the famous painting of John resting his head on Jesus' chest in the Last Supper. We have this idea of John as the beloved, loving disciple. But Jesus gave him and his brother a nickname. And that nickname was Sons of Thunder. Now, I understand you don't pick up a nickname like Sons of Thunder for being meek and quiet. If you were to read through the Gospels, you see a couple of times that John shows up and does say something. He says stuff like this. In fact, later on here in chapter 10, he's going to ask Jesus to rain down fire on someone because they didn't treat him right. John's got a temper. John is not the most loving person at this point in time in his life. He is a son of thunder. He has noise and anger. And this guy is not doing it the way he thinks he ought to be doing it. Now, Again, what we, don't, what we know of this guy is that he wasn't healing people in Satan's name. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name and was doing it effectively. And Jesus tells John something pretty interesting. In modern vernacular, he just tells John, dude, chill out. Back off. Realize that this guy is not necessarily under your control. John as we'll see in the past, and we'll see again, 
John is interested in a little bit of control here. Remember, it was just a few verses before, they're asking and wondering who is going to be among the twelve the most powerful. And he will, he and his brother later on will ask Jesus again, hey, would you put us in positions of authority around you? John is interested in the position of influence. He wants power. He probably wants to do the right thing with it in his own mind. But he's interested in, in fame and glory and control. John has taken, if you will, by that little word, us, he has taken ownership and possession of something that doesn't belong to him. Now, maybe he thinks he just wants to protect Jesus from imposters. But his response is, or Jesus' response is, John, this is not your ministry. John, I don't belong to you. The ministry of God, John, does not belong to you. John's got this idea that everything that's going on belongs somehow to he and the, him and the twelve. And if you're not one of the twelve or those who are immediately following him that John's recognized, that somehow God can't work through the rest of them. I want us to understand this morning. Maybe we wouldn't phrase it the same way John did, but there are times that we become possessive of God's possessions. Sometimes we become possessive of God's ministry. This church that we call London First Baptist Church does not belong to me. It does not belong to you. We as a church belong to Christ. This church, as we call it, is not ours to do with as we please. We are not our own to do with as we please. We belong to God. We belong to another. And it's not ours to shape. It's not ours to dictate. It's not ours to possess. It is His. The moment we become possessive in the way that John's becoming possessive, we do a couple things. One is, we have changed, we've attempted to try to change the nature of the church. The church is not something that we can control, not something that we can possess. It is a group of people who are pursuing and who God has called His own. And even inside the church, sometimes we believe that ministries belong to us. I can't tell you throughout the 30 years I've been in the ministry how many times I have seen someone who's been involved in a certain part of the ministry treat it or act like it or even say that this is my ministry, not someone else's. Several years ago, in fact, many years ago at this point in time, uh, I was serving as a music minister at a church, and we were coming up on, on Christmas. And one of my favorite Christmas songs is Oh Holy Night. Love, love that song. And so I had decided that I was going to uh, do a special music during Christmas, and I was going to sing Oh Holy Night. And I did. And apparently not realizing it, I stepped in it with somebody. Because apparently there was an individual in the church who had been singing Oh Holy Night as a special music for like 15 years. That was their song. And I sang it. Oops. Now, it's a little funny example, but what had happened was they had began to see that thing as theirs and not the Lord's and not God's. We cannot be possessive of the church. We cannot be possessive of a ministry. We cannot be possessive of these things. Again, actually it was the same church. 
we had a, I had a couple of teenagers who were coming to our Wednesday night, and uh, their family was not going to church anywhere else, and I worked on them for six months to finally get them to bring their family to a church on a Sunday morning. They get there on a Sunday morning, six months of work getting this teenager and their parents to, to show up. Six months, they show up on Sunday morning, sit down in a spot, and before the service had began, one of our longtime church members, and I'm not making this up, asked them to move because that was their pew and their seat, and they shouldn't be sitting there. And six months of work went out the window, and they never came back because of the idiots. Sorry. <laughs> I was angry. <laughs> because someone had become possessive of something that wasn't theirs. John thinks the ministry is theirs, his in some shape, form, or fashion, and he says they're not doing it the way, way we're supposed to. John has taken something that's not his. In the book of Philippians, Paul is writing, and he, he, he makes the comment that there are those who are criticizing, there are others apparently who are preaching the gospel. And Paul acknowledges that some of these other preachers aren't preaching with the best of motives. But Paul says, as long as the gospel is being preached, I'm good with it. The truth is, we are not the only church preaching the gospel. The truth is, we are not the only church doing ministry. And we are not in a position to be possessive of anything. We are possessed, not possessing. And when we misunderstand this, we are actually greatly misunderstanding the stakes that God has laid out. For the gospel, the pursuit of Christ, the salvation that God offers us is way too important. The stakes are way too high for us to get petty with it. You get that? That the gospel, the fact that people do not know him, it's way too important for us to say, well, we didn't tell them. How can somebody else better not? They're getting in our way. We cannot be possessive of the ministry. There's too much at stake. One of the things I hope happens, I, I hope we continue to see as this, as this church moves forward is this. That all of us, all of us participate in the ministry that God's laid before this church. Not just some of us. Not just the deacons. Not just Alan or Brady or Danny or some of the staff. Not just me. This church does not belong to me, and the ministry of this church is not, is not mine to do. Only, let me rephrase that. It's not mine to only do. If this church only does what I do, I'm going to tell you what, if, if we're relying upon what one man can do around here, we're in trouble. God's called all of us in this room. And there's not one thing that belongs to me or, doesn't belong, or belongs to you. We belong to him. We become possessive of the ministry. Then we are underestimating the stakes of what God has put in front of us. But not only that, he, he goes on. He says there in verse 41, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Now, you might think, well, what's this? this is, kind of, this is a, a verse that gets used from time to time. And let me tell you what's going on here. John and the apostles, we've already seen this with the illustration of the child in the previous section. 
there are some things that are too good for, there are some things that they're, they're, they're just too good for. Some things that are beneath them. And Jesus is saying, among other things, this. Don't you ever, John, <laughs> look down upon the ministry that I've given somebody else. Even if all it means is to bring you a cup of water. Even if you think that's not that big a deal. By the way, if you're in that part of the world, and it's hot outside, and there's not a faucet over there, you know, in Jesus' day, there's not, you can't just go there and get, hot water, get cold water. Getting a cup of cold water is a big deal in that part of the world in that day and age. Jesus says, it might be something as simple as a cup of water, but don't you look down your nose, John, at the person bringing them. Their reward is sure, and it is steadfast. We had a deacon in one of our churches in the past. We were in Indiana. I liked, I liked him. He was a neat guy. There was nothing he wouldn't do for anybody. We had a, a parsonage. We had a trailer that was a church. We had a mobile home trailer that was our parsonage that we lived in. And we'll just say this thing had occasional structural issues. We'll just, we'll just put it that way. And one of the things that we found out at one point in time was that apparently the sewer line had become disconnected underneath the house. It was just kind of running out the house. This guy got in there. And I said, by the way, I told him what was going on. He didn't bat an eye. He didn't, he didn't change clothes. He just took off the siding and just dove underneath there. I was like, dude, you might want to put on a different set of clothes before you crawl underneath there because I know what's underneath there. It ain't good. But he had a servant's heart. He didn't care what the task was. He didn't care if it was glorious or if it was considered beneath anybody else. This dude would just go do it. And Jesus says, those kind of people, their reward will not be removed. The stakes are too high for us to look down our nose at somebody else. The stakes are too high for us to be possessive of the ministry. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble... It'd be better for him if with a heavy millstone around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. Now, we recognize there, back there in verse 36, verse 37, we looked at last week, Jesus had picked up a child and said, listen, the ones that you think are unimportant, you better consider as very important because the, the values of the kingdom of God are opposite of what they are in this world. And so he, I'm sure that child's probably still sitting in the room. And so Jesus says, remember that child over there? Whoever causes one like that to stumble... And what's he mean when he talks about stumbling? He's talking about someone who is genuinely tripped up. We've we've caused a problem for them. They've actually gotten confused. We're causing them a spiritual problem. He says, this one over here, that you think is unimportant, that you think is no good, that you think is not worth the time of day, that has nothing to offer you, that one over there, if you so much as cause them to stumble in their walk with God, it'd be better for you if you'd been drowned with a millstone around your neck first. That's how high the stakes are. That life, John, that you guys think is so unimportant, is so important to God, you better not get in the way. <laughs> That's how high the stakes are. The gospel is so important. The stakes and the life that God's called not just me to, but the stakes and the life that God's called all of us to in faith in Christ are so high that we cannot be petty and possessive. We cannot be proud. And we can't think there's people less important than us. The stakes are too high. 
It's too important. Verse 43, these next few verses, we have, this, we have the, the, the analogy of Jesus saying, listen, this idea of, of sin, I want to talk to you about it, he says. It would be better for you if your hand is causing you to sin, if somehow that hand offers you a temptation. It would be better for you to cut that thing off and go through life without a hand than to enter into hell and have it cause you to sin. It would be better for you to go through life without a foot than it would be to enter into hell. It would be better for you to go into life partially blind than it would be for you to entertain sin. Now what's Jesus saying there? He's saying that the stakes are so high, it's worth cutting off a few limbs if it gets you into heaven. That your hand, your foot, your eyes are less important than the gospel. It's better to lose a limb, he says, than to lose, lose heaven. There's a pastor from a hundred some odd years ago, named J.C. Ryle. And he said this, that he who would make great strides in holiness must first of all consider the weightiness of sin. What is he telling us here? He's telling us this, that the sin in our lives is dangerous and the stakes are high if we don't deal with it. There's a lot that we're gambling if we're not careful. We all have seen um, people risk things to do daring feats or to do stunts or, or uh, whatnot. We sometimes even like to watch those people get on TV and try to jump over you know, 100 cars on a motorcycle. To, to do stunts, you know, the, the sword swallowers, all those danger acts. We're, we see someone cheating death, and we like to watch that because we think the stakes are, are high. It's, it's a thrill. And there's also, of course, those people who like, to, who like the thrills, who like to get out there and, and cheat death if we all do things that they know are dangerous and take the risk because it's somehow exhilarating for them. And it can be exhilarating to watch. I've got to tell, my, my family knows, I've got, I've got to tell a ski story here. The greatest risk I ever took, probably, it wasn't actually intentional. I was skiing, uh, we were placed, there's a place in southwest Colorado, I think it's called, I think the ski resort's called Purgatory. <laughs> I didn't pick out the name, <laughs> just, it's called Purgatory. And, and a friend of mine and I, we were, we were skiing a, a black diamond run. And this particular portion of the Black Diamond Run, and by the way, that's the hard ones, just in case you don't know. So, yeah, I was okay. So, at least I thought I was pretty good anyway. So, we're, 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 running down, we're going down this run, and there's lots of large moguls, big bumps in the, ski, in the ski run. And this part was directly underneath the ski lift, so we have a bit of an audience, if you will. And so, I had told my friend, of course, you're supposed to kind of go around the moguls as you work your way down like this. I decided it would be fun as a 19-year-old, 18-year-old, whatever it was I was, there's no fun in going around it. The risk, the thrill is in the jump. So I said, I told my friend, I said, watch this. And, you know, a lot of things don't, watch this, hey, is not usually a good first phrase, but I said, hey, watch this. So instead of going around that mogul, I was going to jump it, and I jumped the first one. 
And I came down the backside of the next one. Perfect. But something I didn't anticipate happened. There was another mogul. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. So I went up, jumped, came down, and before I knew I'm back up the second time. And this time I was not really prepared. The result was one ski went that way, one ski went that way. I had no idea where the poles went. I found them eventually. I ended up doing a full backflip. And guess what? I planted the landing. Landed on my feet. Now, I'd like to tell you I did that on purpose. It was an accident of gravity. I took the risk, took the jump. I lived to tell about it. On top of that, there were two girls in that ski lift up there that saw the entire thing. I thought that was pretty cool. They realized, oh yeah, my skis are over there and over there, so that doesn't really look as impressive as I thought. We, we do risky things from time to time, don't we? We don't always account for the danger. Jesus wants us to know we cannot take sin lightly. We might take a ski jump lightly. We might take a, a motorcycle jump lightly. We might take any number of things in our life lightly. Don't take sin lightly. It's high stakes. And if we take sin lightly, if we don't understand the high stakes that God has put on this, we're going to put ourselves in some real danger. Three times he describes hell as where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. I don't know what that means exactly. It does not sound pleasant. The stakes are high. And if we are entertaining and letting sin stay in our lives because we like it, we enjoy it, we think it's not that big a deal, we are grossly underestimating the risk. The stakes are high. The stakes are high, too high for us to be proud. The stakes are too high for us to be possessive. The stakes are too high for us to not love others. The stakes are too high for us to not take sin seriously. I've heard the statement from time to time, well, I'm gonna, I'll, just, I'll live my life the way I want to, and then when I'm older, when I'm done doing all the things I want to do, then I'll come to God. Then I'll get what I want. Then I'll, or then I'll do what He wants. Then I'll do that. But I'll, in the meantime, I want to do what I want to do right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, God says this, that today is the day of salvation. James chapter 4, verses 13 and 14 say that life is a vapor. There is no guarantee of tomorrow. Why are we playing around with things like sin? The stakes are too high. We think this life is the utmost. The, our view, unfortunately, is skewed and, and wrong. We think the things of this world, the temptations, the pleasures, are as good as they can get. It's just not true. Even our own feet and eyes and hands are not worth keeping sin in our lives if it will cost us the future. Mark continues here, Jesus continues here, these last couple of verses, and these are perhaps the most confusing to us. Verse 49, he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt's good, but the salt is, uh, becomes unsalty. With what will you make it salty again? How, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's he talking about here with this idea of salt and fire? There is in the book of Leviticus, 
a reference that the people of Israel would bring a grain offering to the Lord, that they were to bring that grain offering with salt. And even as they brought sometimes a meat offering, it would also be salted. In fact, God tells them a couple times to make sure they bring a salted sacrifice before the Lord. Now, what in the world is going on there? In fact, Leviticus even calls it a covenant of salt. So what's at stake here? What's Jesus talking about here when he talks about a grain offering being burned with salt? Well, I think there's a couple possibilities here. A grain offering, in particular where Leviticus talks about it, a grain offering was, a, was an act of thanksgiving. This was not a sin offering like the way a meat offering might have been. A, a grain offering was an act of thanksgiving. It was acknowledging that God had done something, God had acted, God had saved, God had preserved, whatever the thing might be. And so I bring grain, I bring that stuff to the Lord, and I salt it as a way of saying to Him, thank you, and I trust you. It's an offering of thanksgiving for those who have seen the Lord act. It's an act of, it's an offering of faith. Because again, we're talking three, four thousand years ago, salt is a valuable commodity. Now, we, we just go to the cabinet and get some salt out, right? But you can't do that in Jesus' day. You can't do that in Moses' day. And yet salt is vital to life. You have to have it. Salt was precious. And so to offer salt was a big deal. And this, this idea of salt, salting the sacrifice, it's a way of saying, I trust you as I give you thanks for what you have already done. It's an act of worship. It's an act of faith. Let me suggest something to us this morning. That sacrifice, that worship, is so important because of the stakes involved. We think, well, what's the big deal about showing up on Sunday morning and singing a few songs and listening to the sermon or worshiping together with others and doing some Sunday school and Bible study? What is, the, what is the big deal? It's a big deal because God has set aside for His people from the very beginning to come together and as a people in faith sacrifice and give thanks to the God who's giving them their lives. It's an act of worship. It's why you and I were created. The stakes are high. Worship is a big deal. So much of what God does with the people of Israel in the Old Testament is because they are not worshiping God in a holy way. They are not worshiping God in the way He set aside. Now, you and I, we don't have all the little rules that they had. We don't have to worry about salting and sacrificing like they did in Leviticus. But the the God of holiness that made that covenant with Israel and gave them all those rules to teach them about holiness is still the holy God and still requires of us faith and sacrifice. God himself, the worship of God, is a big, big deal. And to come before God, taking worship lightly, we're risking some pretty high stakes. Now, we do have this promise that for those of us who are in Christ, who have placed our faith in Christ, we can now come to God in confidence. I don't have to worry about dying when I come into God's presence now 
because of what Jesus did. But proper worship is a big deal. The stakes are high. Now, if I show up on a Sunday morning and I just kind of walk through the motions and I don't think that God's really worthy of my full attention today and I don't think it's that big a deal, I am gambling some stuff. Ask Ananias and Sapphira how taking God lightly works in a church setting. You know, that's the two who decided to bring their sacrifice to God and sell them their property and just weren't honest with it and just decided to kind of take it lightly. And God struck them dead. Now, I don't think that's going to happen this morning, but, you know. <laughs> the worship of God's a big deal. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, says that we are to be living sacrifices. Our lives are to be a continual act of faith and worship. The stakes for us this morning as a church are high. Hell is at stake. Heaven is at stake. Salvation is at stake. Lives are at stake. As we leave this building this morning, as we go our separate ways, the stakes are high. The stakes are high for perhaps perhaps there's some in our family Maybe we'll see later on today or tomorrow with the holiday. If there is some in our family who have not trusted in Christ, I want you to know the stakes are high. And you and I, we can't afford to be flippant about it. We can't afford to take God's worship lightly. We can't afford to look down our noses at somebody. We can't afford to be possessive of the ministry. We can't afford to have a wrong relationship with God. We can't afford to let sin in our lives. If it damages the ability for us to share the gospel, the stakes are too high. Not just for us, but for them. The stakes are are massive. We're talking about people who will never understand and know the glory of God's salvation if we don't take it to them. The stakes are high. People's lives are at stake. We have heard of the news the last several days of the floods that are coming, and we've seen over the last couple of days, even this morning or overnight last night, I think two were two in the Oklahoma City area were killed, and there were several killed in Missouri over the weekend through tornadoes. And if we were in a situation where we thought someone's life was at stake, we would make sure that rescuers got to them because it's a big deal. We would, if we saw some guy who was an EMT and saw someone in danger, and he went, yeah, not my problem, that guy would be fired because he would not understand the stakes, right? And yet, here we are, you and I, and God has sent us out with the gospel to a world that's dying and is destined to spend eternity in hell with the the worm doesn't die and the flame doesn't die and you and I are more worried about petty stuff than the rescue of those who don't know him. We're more worried about harboring sin in our lives than we are about seeing people saved. We're more worried about our own little church kingdom than we are about seeing people saved. We're more worried about our status in society than we are seeing people saved. We're more worship, we're more, we're more concerned with being comfortable and worship than we are with the God whom we're worshiping. And God's telling us through the Gospel of Mark this morning, the stakes are too high. You can't do this. There's people out there that are dying to be rescued. And Jesus is going, and I've sent you. This whole section started with John asking a question. And Jesus' response to John is, John, Get off this. 
There's too much going on, John, for you to be worried about what that guy over there is doing. Just get to work. And do what I've told you to do. John, stop worrying about people you don't think are important and just serve. John, don't let sin reign in your life. And what he's telling John this morning, he's telling us, there's too much at stake for us to sit by and let these things just happen.